Today, Rinpoche continued his explanation of the special insights section of great Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment. We are currently on chapter 24, which is negating the intrinsic existence and the intrinsic arisal of self, other, both, or causeless. That's cool. Uh, so I see there's uh, a new face or two. I have my glasses on. I can either see my book or see you. So I've got to. Um, but uh, welcome to the Chen Rezig Tibetan Buddhist Center. This is Kensur uh, Geshe Wandak. He's a retired abbot of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's monastery, Namgyal, and holds the degree of Geshe Larampa, which is the highest degree one can achieve or attain in the Tibetan Buddhist Galup tradition. Uh, Rinpoche is recognized by all the world's greatest scholars uh, as one of the um, uh, greatest living scholars of the Sutra and Tantra tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, that is a view held um, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama as well. Dalai Lama sent him to the United States to be the head of his North American seat. Uh, and then Rinpoche, after doing some tours, and stopping at our little center at 504 Main Street that had five or six students, asked for, for permission from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and received it to retire here. Um, so it was previously uh, before Ted's and uh, others' generosity just at a little apartment on Main Street and now we have this beautiful uh, place to practice um, and it only began with a few students and a wish to study Buddhism and now there's over 500 teachings online uh, and there is information uh, that are, is going to be used for years to come by all the scholars at the great universities um, and so forth because all of those uh, have programs now in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So we find at Yale, we find at Harvard especially, in Virginia, and uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, and Columbia of course, and so many of the great um, universities in the West now are, you, are have entire course studies on this information that we're studying now. So these teachings that we're doing are not only for our benefit and the benefit of those who can watch them currently online, but they're also for years to come. The scholastic tradition of Tibetan Buddhism will be able to be upheld because these commentaries exist. Um, and this commentary Rinpoche is currently giving um, is on the great treatise of the stage of the path to enlightenment by Lama Tsongkhapa. Uh, th this, particular, um, this particular text is considered one of the most important texts ever written in the Tibetan Buddhist Galup tradition and it summarizes all of the teachings that Lord Buddha ever gave into one very uh, understandable and um, easily practiced if you focus text um, in the order that one would do the practice and so forth. Uh, so before that um, uh, you had just a poem written by Lord Atisha uh, that kind of summarized the teachings and put them in an order but there wasn't a really extensive commentary ever written down about how to practically apply all of these teachings that Buddha gave. So in the Tibetan canon, if you, if you will, we have a hundred volumes of the Buddha's actual speech and then 213 volumes of the authentic Indian commentaries which were um, Indian pandits who were very close in years, you know, within a thousand or so to the actual Buddha 
and the arhats and who wrote all these teachings down at the first and second Buddhist council. Um, so we have a total of, what is that, 313 texts that have to be kind of interpreted and, and figured out. Um, so what Lord Atisha did is summarize it into a very succinct way to practice it. Um, and he was from India and came to Tibet to do so. And then practitioners such as um, Gampopa and then Lama Tsongkhapa extended the information on which Lord Atisha kind of presented. This is the most extensive text ever written. It's called The Great Treatise on the Stage of the Path to Enlightenment uh, in the early 1400s, I believe. Uh, it was composed, if not late 1300s, I'm bad with that, um, but it was composed at that time. It was made over a long period of time. This text wasn't written in a year. It was written over a long period of time, and the section that we're actually in was very difficult for Lama Tsongkhapa to write, and he actually invoked and called upon various scholars and deities to help him with it. So it's said that he actually had help from uh, Buddha Palita and Manjushri and so forth um, for this specific section because of the difficulty on it. Um, so this is where we are currently. Rinpoche is in what's in English, the third volume of the text. In Tibetan, it's just one text, um, but they broke it into sections for the English translations because it's such a complicated text. They had actual committees working on each section of the book and it became three texts and then they chaptered it and so forth and, and, it, came, and it turned into the complete translation. Um, and the, the, the most difficult one to translate was obviously this last text. So Rinpoche is now um, going to be giving us more explanation and mostly transmission. We're on page 309, chapter 24. Uh, um, objects lack intrinsic existence. And right now, Rinpoche has given the longest commentary that's ever been given on this text historically. So since this was written by Lama Tsongkhapa, um, unless it was private, teacher to student, or in small groups that weren't recorded, this is the longest recorded teaching that's ever been given on this, the most extensive commentary ever given on this, this text. Uh, so we're very fortunate, it's very rare. Uh, we'll probably be into almost a decade um, of teaching, whereas the longest book is 23 days of a teaching that was written down. Um, and there's some other teachers who do a summerly cor summer courses, um, but this has just gone on and on and on. And if you go back, I encourage everyone to go to the first teachings, the, uh, where we are in the first and second volume, because that's the basis of Buddhism. All of this information that we're getting is important, and it's from a scholastic standpoint, the highest there is. But this isn't really applicable without the foundational practices. Uh, and the foundational practices, the core practices are found in that first and second volume. And Rinpoche gave almost a word-by-word -word commentary on a lot of that section. Uh, so there's a jewel, if you haven't seen it, to go back and really watch, um, because those are the things uh, that, that, that show you why you go for refuge, what refuge is, what quality does Buddha have that makes me want to follow him or her, what quality does Sangha have, what quality does Dharma have. Is Sangha us? No. Sangha is a very specific group of people who have seen emptiness. Um, did I know that? I'm, I'm taking refuge in something. Do I know what that is I'm taking refuge in? The, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and then the enlightened activities are the special things that the Buddha can do because he or she is a Buddha. 
So that's another reason I'm taking refuge. Do I know what that is? So if you don't, then the entrance to Buddhism is refuge. And if you don't know what you're taking refuge in, there's no way it's incontrovertible. There's no way that it's not something you could wake up tomorrow morning, hear something that sounded pretty good, and believe that instead. So that's why it's so important to analyze and study so that the next newest thing you hear about tomorrow doesn't sway your opinion for another decade. So anyway, my name's Jeff. I'm the translator. I'm so honored to be able to translate for Rinpoche and to be able to be part of this process. Again, we're on page uh, 309 in the English. Rinpoche is uh, going to be begin now, and I just want to say thank you, everyone, for... Uh, allowing this to happen, especially Ted and uh, Katie and uh, Geshe Nima and Rinpoche's core caretakers that have been there for so many years. So at this moment, we have this human basis, this precious human basis that is the most um, uh, capable of practicing religion, practicing the Buddhist Dharma. So because at this time, we have this basis, uh, which has so many qualities and so many aptitudes, we need to make sure, because of impermanence, that we utilize it for those means, for those good things. And the reason that we want to utilize it, the reason why we want to actually engage our aptitude, engage our qualities, allow our qualities to be brought forth um, and even developed and made, made better, is because that by doing so, we are accumulating the things that we need to, to have good uh, and fortunate rebirths in the future. So not only um, are we living a life which is um, considered a good life, uh, that living of a good life is allowing us to, in future lives, um, have fortunate circumstances. So right now we have this human basis, which is the most um, capable basis among the six realms of cyclic existence for practicing the Dharma. So, <coughs> with this human basis, uh, we have to, if we want, if we, uh, with this human basis, if we wish to practice the religion and do it accurately, we need to follow accurate steps. We need to follow an accurate plan. Uh, so we find that plan outlined in what is called the teachings for beings of three capacities. So as a note, uh, connecting to what I spoke of before at the beginning introduction, um, Lord Atisha came to Tibet um, uh, from India and brought this kind of summary of how one would practice in a specific order. And then Lama Tsongkhapa wrote the commentary on that summary. The way that Lord Atisha summarized it and the, that now Lama Tsongkhapa comments uh, on it is by way of three. 
and it's called the teachings shared in com the teachings for beings of three capacities. Uh, so the first category of teachings is called the teachings shared in common with beings of small capacity. This word common is used because they aren't exclusive to each of this grouping. The, the next grouping uh, will rely upon the previous grouping. So the medium the uh, grouping will rely on the small grouping and the large grouping will rely on the medium and the small grouping. So this is why we say shared in common. So the first category is called the teaching shared in common with beings of small capacity and these are for practitioners who wish to achieve higher realm rebirth in their next lives. Rebirth into the humans, demigods, and gods realm. One, this practitioner engages in going for refuge to the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, engages in ethical behavior that abandons the ten non-virtuous activities, and then from, uh, and then if he or she engages in negativity, acknowledges those downfalls. So through relying upon those practices of refuge, ethical behavior, and acknowledgement, one is able to achieve higher realm rebirth. And these are called the teachings shared in common with beings of small capacity. The next category of teaching is called the teachings shared in common with beings of medium capacity. And this set of teachings is for practitioners who wish to achieve nirvana or an individual liberation. That is achieved by practicing the previous mentioned teachings within the small scope and then coupling them with the three highest higher trainings, the highest higher training in ethics, concentration, and wisdom. And in dependence upon those practices, he or she is able to achieve nirvana, an individual liberation which is the abandonment of the afflictive obstructions which bind one to cyclic existence. So once those afflictive obstructions are gone, there is no more cyclic existence for that, for that, that being to experience. Uh, so therefore he or she is liberated from that cyclic existence. But that practitioner still, even though he or she is in nirvana, has imprints of those afflictions remaining, and this is what disallows him or her um, uh, to be um, uh, omniscient. Um, so the thing that needs to be removed in order for a being to be omniscient is called the obstructions to omniscience, and those can only be removed by practicing the final category, the teachings shared in the teachings for beings of great capacity. The teachings of beings for beings of great capacity allow one to remove um, all of the uh, obstructions, the afflictive obstructions and the obstructions to omniscience, and allow the practitioner to become a Buddha. Uh, to allow the practitioner to become omniscient and all-knowing, which is a characteristic of a Buddha. Uh, so this practitioner must practice the small and the medium scope and then couple that with the generation of bodhicitta, the mind that aspires to enlightenment. And once he or she has generated that bodhicitta, engaging in the six perfections, the perfection of generosity, the perfection of ethics, the perfection of patience, the perfection of effort, the perfection of concentration and the perfection of wisdom. And in dependence upon all of those practices, he or she becomes a Buddha. So this is how Lord Atisha and then Lama Tsongkhapa divided the teachings into the teachings for, for beings of three capacities. 
dig song rimbache that's more or less oh then can you then you can push a memorial or something so the Kangjur, which are the pronouncements of Lord Buddha, which we said we have a hundred texts of, and the Tengjur, the authentic Indian commentaries, we have 213 texts of, would be very difficult to understand the meaning of. If we were to just take those, that raw material, that, those texts, and try to understand how a practitioner was to go from uh, a non-Buddhist to a Buddhist to a Buddha, it would be very difficult to understand. Uh, but what Lama Tsongkhapa has done is taken the essence and the meaning of all of it and in a very uh, um, clear way condensed it into the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment and the great treatise on the stages of the tantric path to enlightenment. So Lama Tsongkhapa wrote uh, the two texts. One is about Tantrayana and one is about the perfection vehicle. Um, and both texts are very long. At, um, and are the, the tantric text is similar. The Shugu Gats Ngarim Chemo Shugu Gatsirbe. So it's very similar in length to the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment. So we don't have in English yet the great treatise on the tantric stages of the path to enlightenment. Um, so that hasn't been translated yet. So we have only this great treatise on the stage of the path to enlightenment. So the difference is this is about the perfection vehicle, sutra path, and the other text is about the tantric path. But the tantric path is called the resultant vehicle. Um, it's called that for two reasons. One is that you're using result as path um, in some ways. Um, but the other is that it, is, it relies upon the perfection vehicle. Um, so in terms of order of learning, the perfection vehicle is a necessary basis. Bodhicitta, you have to have bodhicitta to take an initiation proper. Like, to actually receive an initiation, you have to be a bodhisattva. Um, so, that's the reason that it depend, one depends on the other, and probably the reason that the Dalai Lama has advised the translation of this first, first um, because this is uh, the order of, of, of things. Um, so, the Kangjur and the Tanjur have been summarized into Lama Tsongkhapa's great treatise on the Tantric Pact and the great treatise on the Perfection Path if you were to just explain the names and what they mean. Digson Rinpoche. Jidan 
راجے جی تم بتا راجے جی میں بلا شاجی کے بھی دینی جوتی شینا دینی جوتی شینا تے چوتاں جی چوتاں جی لچنے چوتاں جی لچنے تاں جی تاں جی جی راجے میں بلا دلا دو دو با نو بے پانچے بے ناجے بے پدن پدن نی لا نے با تو با جاو تو با جاو تے در ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、ただ、
Rajin 
ਜਿਹਦਾ ਜੇ ਭਰਸੇਵਾ ਸਾਲੂ ਸਭ ਸਭ ਰਾਗੇ ਅੰਦਰ ਰਾਗੇ ਨੇ ਉਹ ਸਾਲੂ ਨਗੋਲੇ ਨਗੋਲੇ ਜੇ ਜੇ ਮਾਇੰਬਾ ਤੇਜੇ ਤੋ ਸ਼ੇਬਾ ਤੇਜੇ ਦੇ ਸ਼ੇਬਾ ਸ਼ੇਬਾ ਮਾਇੰਬਾ ਮਦਾ ਸਵਾਦਾ ਨੈਦਾ ਸਭ ਸਭ ਨਾ ਸੁਬਲੇ ਜੇ ਇਨੋ ਯਾ ਜਿਹਦਾ ਰਸਾਲੂ ਸਭ ਜੇ ਤੋ ਜੁਬਲੇ ਸਾਲੂ ਨਗੋ ਨਗੋ ਜਵਾ ਤੇਜੇ ਤੋ Matansua。Remember so chapter 24 objects lack intrinsic existence so this is going to apply the arguments that we've already applied to uh the self um the <coughs> i and showing how we just present the same facts about every other phenomena so um and and they apply so how to apply those lines of reasoning to other phenomena those arguments also apply to other things just as the analysis of the self and the aggregates follows the pattern of the analysis of the chariot you should realize that this is also the case with things like pots and cloth when reasoning that searches for intrinsic nature searches in seven ways by analyzing whether pots and such are one with or different from their forms etc they are not found in those seven ways in terms of either of the two truths instead they are posited from the perspective of a non analytical conventional consciousness this is because the buddha takes up positions without using reason to refute what the world knows as is demonstrated by his statement in the chapter teaching the three vows uh yeah you can try that one out in your own mind in parentheses it says that the world debates with me i do not debate with the world whatever is held in the world to exist or not to exist i also hold as such um accordingly chandrakirti's commentary in the middle way says whatever it is pot cloth tent army forest rosary tree house small chariot guest house or anything you should know the conventions used by these worldly beings why because the master of the sages does not debate with the world part quality attachment defining characteristics fuel etc also well as whole qualified attached person definienda fire etc those objects do not exist in seven ways under the al- analysis like that applied to the chariot on the other hand they do not exist in terms of what is familiar uh they do exist in terms of what is familiar to the world so conventional truth we have ultimate truth and conventional truth and in terms of conventional truth the buddha is saying and here chandrakirti is saying that we agree with whatever the world concurs on that is called uh, so if you call that a car we agree that's a car we don't agree that it intrinsically exists we don't agree with with what your eye apprehends it in the first moment to be a whole partless object but we agree that it's a car conventionally we just don't ultimately agree with how you believe it abides so um that's the point that's being made here we're not refuting anything that the world concurs about in terms of what things are called and 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 what they're defined as so in buddhism you have definienda uh um definition and definiendum um and that's a big topic in the first logic primers that you study so you 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 know you you're presented with a definition and then you come up with what its definiendum is 
presented with a definiendum and you have to you know, posit its definition. And it gets you um, um, working with conventional truth and what is suitable to be called this or that. Why is this base, base is suitable to be called that? Because a, a car, because it's a collection of parts that come together that make this thing that if you define cars as that which is rolls down the road, you know, if that was it, I don't know what the definition of car is. It, if it rolls down the road and then that collection of parts is suitable to be called car. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of emphasis placed on that. So just as an aside, that's why I'm bringing it up and why they're saying we don't disagree with the world because there's a ton of emphasis on, okay, this is what we call this and, and why. And then you define it and you find that its definition is empty and the definiendum is empty and so forth. And that part of its definition proves its emptiness. Um, so anyway, whatever they may be, the conventions used by these worldly beings should be known only as existent without analysis. What are those conventions? They are parts and holes, etc. Take a pot, for example. Pot is the whole, the qualified and the definiendum. Pieces of the pot and such are the parts. Blue and so forth are the qualities. Bulbous, water-holding, long neck, etc. are the defining characteristics. So then Rinpoche defined pot. He went back to the, it's in the maybe third page of the first book you study um, in Drepung, uh, the collected topics. Um, and it, it says, uh, the definiendum is pot, and pot is defined as that which is flat, bulbous, capable of holding water and long-necked, or something to that effect. Um, so, um, um, and I can even remember it in Tibetan, which doesn't matter, but it's funny how much debate places things in your mind and makes them stay there and not move. Um, um, it, it's funny that I can come up with the definition of a pot in my mind in Tibetan instantly, but the Heart Sutra because I didn't do it over and over again, is something I memorized as well. But the other day I went to recite it and had forgotten a lot of it. So it's interesting how much debate matters in terms of solidifying topics in your mind. And it was proven to me the other morning. Um, uh, anyway, and then proven to me again when Rinpoche said the definition of pot, I immediately knew it was pot. Um, other examples such as cloth are handled in the same way, which is another topic in the first three or four pages of the Collected Topics book, um, is cloth, its definition. Cloth is form, etc., etc. So they start to identify objects and categorize them. That passage, attachment, refers to intense attachment and clinging. Attached person refers to the basis of that attachment because Jayananda's explanation of Chandrakirti's commentary uh, on the middle way explains that attached refers to a person who has attached. Fire is the agent of burning and fuel is the object burn. Holes are imputed in dependence upon parts and parts are imputed in dependence upon holes. And so it is with each other, of the other pairs, quality, qualified, etc., up to and including fuel and fire. Fuel is imputed in reliance upon fire and fire is imputed in reliance upon uh, fuel. Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise um, states... Um, agents arise in dependence upon objects, and objects arise in dependence upon those very agents. Apart from this, we see no way for agents and objects to exist. You have to have a conventional existence in order for it to be ultimately 
um, have an ultimate truth. So you have to have a conventional truth for it to be an ultimate truth. Um, and if you have an ultimate truth there about something, there's a conventional truth that it's um, speaking of. So if there, in order for you to say this lacks intrinsic existence, there has to be this. Um, so that means that the ultimate relies on the conventional, and the conventional um, relies on the ultimate um, for agents and objects to exist. Um, so because there couldn't be an object there if there wasn't dependent origination. Um, so the object couldn't be there without the emptiness, the actual nature of the object. Um, and other things should be understood by way of what I explained about agents and objects. Um, uh, just again, uh, Jagarjuna's fundamental treatise states, agents arise in dependence upon objects and objects arise in dependence upon those very agents. Apart from this, we see no way for agents and objects to exist. All other things should be understood by way of what I explained without, about agents and objects. Therefore, produced and producer, path and traveler, viewed and viewer, valid cognition and object of comprehension, etc., everything should be understood not as existing essentially but only as existing in mutual dependence. Accordingly, understand how to posit the two truths so that one thing such as the self is empty of intrinsic existence under such analysis yet can act and be acted upon in absence of intrinsic existence if you do this then by extending an understanding uh, by extending that understanding to all phenomena you can easily know their lack of intrinsic existence therefore be certain about the example of the chariot and its meaning as I if I explained it above. As the King of Concentration Sutra says, as for your perception of self, ex extend that sort of understanding to everything. The essence of all phenomena is pure like the sky. You can know them all by way of one. You can see them all by way of one. No matter how many things you can explain, do not be arrogant about it. How to determine that there is no self in phenomena? The basis to which the persons imputed include the five aggregates, the six constituents, such as the earth and constituent, earth constituent and the six sources, the eyes, and so forth. These are objects. Their emptiness of essential or intrinsic existence is the absence of an objective self. There are many ways to determine that objects lack intrinsic self. However, Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way determines that things lack intrinsic existence by refuting four possible types of production. Since the explanation of the middle way commentary says that this determination is an is a determination of the absence of an objective self, I will now give a brief explanation of that refutation of four types of production. Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise says, there is no sense in which anything has ever been produced, either from itself, from something else, from both, or without a cause. This means in part, no internal or external thing is ever in any way produced from itself. These other theses can be constructed in the same way. Reductio ad absurdum, arguments will refute the claim that something can be produced from itself. Thus, these theses do not offer pro probative examples or reasons, but offer a critique of the contrary positions. Here, if something is intrinsically produced, it is limited to, the possi to two possibilities. Either it relies upon a cause or it does not rely upon a cause. Hence, if it relies upon a cause, the cause and the effect are limited to two possibilities. They are either intrinsically one or intrinsically different. Production in which cause and effect are intrinsically one is called production from self. Production in which cause and effect are intrinsically different is called production from another. Production that relies upon a cause is certain to be either production from self or production from another, which can be considered individually or else to be production from both self and other in combination. Individually, there are two cases, production from self and production from other. Therefore, this is how we rule out other possibilities while refuting just four possible types of production. Refute, refutation of production of self. 
If a seedling were produced from itself, its production would be a pointless would be pointless because production means that what is produced has come into being. If it were produced from self, a seedling would have already come into being, as in the case of a seedling that is clearly manifest. Production also would be endless because if an already arisen seed were to arise again, the very same seed would have to arise repeatedly. In that case, there is the fallacy that since the seed is, is itself arising continuously, there is never a chance for the production of seedlings and such. Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise says, if cause and effect were the same, then the produced and the producer would be the same. So here, this is negating the enumerators school. They are called the enumerators because they posit that everything can be put into 25 categories. They're called the Sampkya school. Uh, and they believe that that cause and effect are the same. They believe that all effects are, are already contained within the cause, that it's all there already. They believe in this, sim this simultaneous idea of, of that, that cause and, um, uh, already has effect within it. Within the, 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 within it, it's already there. Um, so then this is negating the Samkhya schools. And if caused all of these different um, consequences that have been put forth are negating that enumerator school. If cause and effect were the same, then the produced and producer would be the same. And also Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way says, There is no advantage in its arising from itself. There is no reason for something that has been produced to be produced again. If you suppose that something already produced is produced again, then the production of seedlings and such would not be found in this world. And therefore, the imputation that things arise from themselves is reasonable neither in terms of reality nor in terms of the world. So he's saying that it would just be seed would be called, sprout would be called seed. It would just be seeds continue. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be called sprout. It wouldn't have a separate entity. It would be the same entity. And uh, uh, so that's not reasonable. It's saying even to the world. You're saying you call it sprout and seed. Uh, reputation of production from another. The Buddha said that effects are produced from four conditions which are other. Therefore, things are produced from another. Reply, if effects were produced from intrinsically existing causes, then thick darkness could arise from a flame because those two are other. Furthermore, all things, whether or not they are effects, would be produced from all things, whether or not they are causes, because they are alike in their otherness. This means that if you assert that seed and seedling exist essentially or intrinsically, then it is evident that the way that a rice seedling essentially or intrinsically differs from things that cannot produce it, such as fire, is identical to the way that a rice seedling intrinsically differs from its cause, a grain of rice. That is, when it appears to be intrinsically different from something that cannot produce it, a seedling seems different in the sense of being autonomous and independent. And it would seem different in the same way when it appears to be different from its own seed. If the way they would seem different is that they appear to be essentially or intrinsically different, then it is completely impossible to make the distinction that the rice seedling is not produced from fire and such, but it is produced from a rice seed. We distinguish that which produces a seedling from that which does not. We make the distinction in terms of whether something differs from the seedling in the sense of differing intrinsically. The young 
Tobanda 
Shabatada, 
Shina Kana Rade Radela Drumogobata Tekejan Omitawanyeba Okay. And reply. This is shown to be a contradiction. Chandrakirti's explanation of the middle way commentary states this clearly. Just as a productive just as a productive rice seed is other than the rice seedling, which is its effect, so it is that such things as fire, charcoal, and barley seed, which do not produce it, are also other than seedling. Yet this, yet just as a rice seedling arises from a rice seed, which is other, it would also arise from fire, charcoal, barley seed, etc. And just as from a rice seed there arises a rice seedling, which is other, so things like pots and cloth could also arise from a rice seed. Yet you never see this. Hence, this is not the case. Thus, the assertion by earlier Tibetans that logical entailments are proven by a multitude of isolated cases, i.e. by induction, is not what Chandrakirti holds. I explain the arguments contradicting that claim above in the section on the refutation of the position that is not established that in a kitchen the mere presence of smoke entails the mere presence of fire. Um, so here, this 633 footnote sends you over to Jeffrey Hopkins' meditation on emptiness. So that's what the page is here, where you'll find the whole explanation of the smoke, fire, kitchen, etc. Um, and what that means. Uh, Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise says, if cause and effect were other, then causes and non-causes would be just alike. Also, Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way says, if those things arose in dependence upon what is other, then thick darkness would arise even from a flame. Everything would arise from everything. Why? Because it is being other. All the non-producers of something would be just like its producers. So the whole thing that with the smoke and the fire in the kitchen is that it's showing that it isn't one entity. It's just an entity that arises from another entity that's a sign. It's not saying that where there's smoke there's fire, meaning there's one thing. It's meaning that there's a relationship. Because if that were the case, if you would say if where there's smoke there's kitch, uh, um, kitchen smoke, there's, uh, where there's smoke, there's uh, kitchen fire. If it's in a kitchen, then it would mean that where there's smoke, if there's uh, on a mountain pass, there's kitchen fire. So it, would, it, it has to be that there's two separate entities there is the point that it's making. And it goes on and on and on. You can read it, but that's the whole point, that the, the kind of pith of what it's saying. Um, I, was, I read it in the midst of it, just to see. Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise says, if cause and effect were other, then causes and non-causes would be just alike. Also, Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way says, if things arose in dependence upon what is other, then thick darkness would arise even from a flame. Everything would arise from everything. Why? Because in un being other, all the non-producers of something 
would be just like its producers. You cannot answer such reductio arguments by distinguishing that what produces something from what does not in terms such as whether something is included within the same continuum with the effect. For, as explained above, if things are other in the sense of being intrinsically different, their inclusion within the same continuum cannot be established. Also, it is inadequate to reply that we can see a definite regularity as to what produces a certain effect and what does not. This is because what we are now analyzing is whether such regularity could hold it hold up if the difference between a cause and effect were essential to the object themselves rather than being posited by the mind. Refutation of production from both self and other. Advocates and production from both self and other another claim that the production of a clay pot from the clay is production from self and the production of a clay pot by a potter etc is a production from other even among Buddhists there are those who advocate production from both as follows since Devadatta poor Devadatta since Devadatta takes birth in other lifetimes only by the way of a life essence Devadatta and his life essence are one therefore he is produced from himself. At the same time, Devadatta is being produced from his parents and from his virtuous and non-virtuous karma constitutes production from other. Since there is a, a, neither production from self alone nor production from another alone, there is no production from the two together. The same arguments given above refute this. Within production from both, the factor of production from self is refuted by the arguments that refute production from self, and the factor of production from another is refuted by the arguments that refute production from another. Chandrakirti's commentary on the Middle Way says, production from both is also unreasonable. Why? Because the fallacies already explained befall it. Production from both together exists neither in terms of the world nor in terms of reality because individually production from self and from another are not established. Refutation of causeless production. Lokiata, proponents of spontaneous originata, origination argue that the production of things is only a matter of spontaneous origination and for no one is seen working to make lotus roots rough or to make lotus leaves soft nor is anyone seen catching peacocks and such as to put on their shapes and colors this is incorrect for production were causeless and production such as uh, such as exists at one place in time would have to exist at all places and times or else must never exist anywhere this is because things arise uh, this is because things arise at one place in time and not at another due to the presence of absence of their causes. Something you do not accept. The eyes on the tail of the feathers of peacocks would also be presence on the crows and the like. In brief, if something were produced causelessly, then it would have to be produced from everything or else it would have to be, it would never be produced. Worldly beings, in order to obtain a desired effect, would not have to work to create the causes of that effect, and everything would be senseless. Chandrakirti's commentary on the Middle Way says, If it were the case that things are produced without any cause, then these worldly beings would not go through hundreds of hardships to collect seeds and such for growing crops. Um, so here it's just establishing the, uh, the conventional existence of things, um, and it's establishing that they are not causeless because there is certain schools the nihilist tradition that would establish that things are causeless that they don't they um, they don't have any kind of rhyme or reason they just emerge causelessly um, so here it's saying well then um, if if there isn't such a thing then what are um, there wouldn't be all these beings that are gathering these things and doing this stuff if nothing existed and there weren't 
um, um, uh, if, if it says, if, the, if it were the case that things are produced without any cause, then these worldly beings would not go through hundreds of hardships to collect seeds and such for growing crops. So if you know cause and effect works, because if you plant a seed, you get a crop. If this wasn't the case, then all these beings wouldn't gather seeds to go, to go do this. So saying that we already know cause and effect to be true. Uh, look, at the, look at the case in worldly matters. How to infer that intrinsic production does not exist. Thus, by seeing the arguments contradicting the four alternative types of production, uh, risen from self, other, both, or causeless, you establish that production from these four extremes does not exist. This entails the non-existence of intrinsic production, as proven both in the section on precluding other possibilities beyond these four. Therefore, you can use these arguments to become certain that things do not intrinsically uh, exist. Sure, something. Okay. When you make these reductio ad absurdum arguments, inference is thereby generated. At that time, there is no syllogistic statement that directly proves the thesis. Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way concisely states the point of arguments contradicting these four possible types of production. Because things are not produced from self, another, both, or without relying on causes, they lack intrinsic existence. This indicates how, as an effect of having stated reductio ad absurdum arguments, you can develop an inference based on a syllogistic syllogistic reasoning. It is not that you begin by stating to the opponent this sort of syllogism based on what the other party accepts. By refuting intrinsically existent production in this way, you become certain that things do not intrinsically exist. It is then easy to be certain that things, permanent phenomena, also lack intrinsic existence. You thereby find the view of the middle way, that is the knowledge that all phenomena are empty of intrinsic existence. Further, so you're working within this framework, but that's not what you're saying to the person that you're debating. The person that you're debating might own, holds maybe one of these. Uh, so they believe that things are created by other. So there's no reason to refute self because you're trying to negate their wrong view that things are created by other by redu reducing the idea of that to an uh, absurdium, showing the consequence of that to establish the correct. You're not establishing all the things. You're trying to change the incorrect into correct. So you're showing the person who holds this the consequence of that to bring about truth and to show yourself the consequence to that belief. Um, so uh, Nagarjuna's fundamental treatise says, that which is dependently arisen is naturally at peace. Chandrakirti's commentary on the middle way says, because things arise dependently, these misconceptions cannot bear scrutiny. Therefore, the reasoning of dependent arising cuts all the entanglement of bad views. Accordingly, you use dependent arisings as a reason to become certain that seedlings and such are empty of intrinsic existence. When you do this, the eradication of any possible misstep is extremely clear in your mind. Hence, we will say little about this. In this case, you use an argument based Based on what others accept. A seedling does not intrinsically exist because of a rising independence upon its causes and conditions, like a reflection. For example, when a reflection of a face appears, young children do not see it and think. Think this appearance of eye, nose, and so forth is like this for the perspective of a mind such as mine, but the way it appears is not the way it exists. Rather, they consider what appears to be the way things actually exist, the way they are. Similarly, when living beings experience or see a phenomena, they do not apprehend it as being set up by the power of the mind to which it appears. Rather, they apprehend it as existing just as it appears, i.e., as existing as an essentially 
objective manner, in an essentially objective manner, since this is how intrinsic existence is superimposed. The presence of a, such a nature is in the object the presence of such a nature in the object is what is meant by essence, intrinsic nature, and autonomous existence. Thus, if such a nature were present, this would contradict reliance upon other causes and conditions. If this were not a contradiction, that it would be impossible to hold that an already existing pot does not need to be produced again and again from causes and conditions. Accordingly, Arya Davis 400 stanzas says, so uh, seed would just be sprout, it wouldn't be two separate entities, and sprout wouldn't require water, sunlight, and 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 uh, and, fer and fertile soil uh, in order for it to be produced, uh, um, because it it would be um, arisen from itself. Um, and if it was risen from other, you would say that sprout is water, and sprout is dirt. So um, those are the consequences of self and other. Um, that what, which arises dependently does not exist autonomously. All of these things lack autonomous existence, therefore they have no self. And Chandrakirti's commentary on the 400 stanzas comments on that passage, that which has its own essence, intrinsic nature, autonomy, or independence from others is self-existent and thus is not dependent arising. All compound phenomena are dependent arisings. Anything that is a dependent arising is not autonomous because it is produced in dependence upon causes and conditions. Thus things all lack autonomy. There is no such, no thing which has self that is intrinsic nature. Autonomous means something appears to be intrinsically existent and when it does so, it appears to those same consciousnesses not depending on other phenomena and exists as it appears. However, if you take autonomous existence to mean not depending on other causes and conditions and refute that sort of autonomous existence, then there will be no need to prove the lack of such autonomous existence to our own Buddhist school. Schools. Yet, despite refuting that, you will be able, unable to posit the view of the Madhyamaka middle way. Hence, we take autonomy to mean that something exists in a manner such that is essentially capable of objectively establishing itself. So, the middle way autonomy school believes that there is some thingness to the thing so that allows it to objectively establish itself. So, that conventionally has some thingness. So, there's intrinsic existence left, and that's why that the middle, the Madhyamika Svatantrika school is not correct ultimately. Okay, questions? Rimching, it did some more last one. The, 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 um, Chamba ka, ni Ranjupa ka, ni lasun. So we Rimche keeps asking how many pages we have left of the Lamrim. And we have around fifty left. A little around. It's, I'm not giving. I'm just giving at, you know, around 50 or so left. Uh, it's such a long text. Yeah, it's it's such a long text, and this last section um, is very complex. And someone who's reading it that has a Geshe degree's mind is like exploding after three pages. It's really tiresome. 
to read this as a geshe because it's very quickly weaving in and out of the tenet systems, not only of the Buddhist schools, but the non-Buddhist schools as well. So every couple lines, you're moving from a non-Buddhist school to a Buddhist school, and there's a really precise points that are being landed at specific times kind of going through certain systems. So you're recognizing that as a scholar as you read it, and it's just letting off bombs in your mind of negation and why the Prasangika school is correct. So after Rinpoche just reads it, even though there isn't a long commentary, um, just always remember that the teacher's mind has the commentary and is doing that while reading it. So it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. So that's why Rinpoche said, whew, and laughed. Because <laughs> once you get to this section, it's what separates a scholar from somebody who knows how to explain an introduction to Buddhism. Once you get to this section, that is what the name of the game is. This section is why we are bound to cyclic existence. Because we don't know this section, that's the reason that we're here suffering. So, and this section is super hard to understand and takes lifetimes. So it's, it's like those are the kind of stakes we're talking about in the mind of a renunciate the kind of stakes that mean that if I don't know this, I'm going to die again and suffer again and die again and suffer again. Yes? Uh, so I was, right at the start, they had this passage here. It says, you know, because the Buddha takes up positions without using reason to refute what the world knows, yes. as is demonstrated by his, his statement, the world debates with me. I do not debate with the world. Whatever is held by the world to exist or not, I also hold as such. Sort of reminded me of something from the... Uh, I think it's the Lotus Sutra where they use it as there's this sort of there's this parable where there's talking there's there's a guy whose house is on fire and he yells out like like there's this burning house and his children he sees the children inside and he's trying to get his children to come out and they won't come out so he tells them that he has toys for them outside because even though he wants to bring he wants to bring them out to save them from the fires he still he has to sort of goad them with this thing and it's sort of this metaphor. For uh, for the upayas, or they're called sometimes skillful means, and I know in a lot of Buddhist schools, like they sort of have this thing where, like, the te if you have some kind of presupposition in your head when you go and you talk to a master, you know, they'll give you a teaching that's deliberately not correct, so that you can, you know, so that when you go back and think about it, you'll sort of think about it, you'll realize that it's wrong, and then you'll come back the next time. I've been reading just real quickly. I don't. A teacher would never teach wrong view. Right. So a teacher would definitely. They're definitely teaching to scope in terms of the tenet systems. Uh, the Buddhist masters have said this being is a vessel not for the Madhyamaka because they had clairvoyance. So this there's this group of beings or this being that needs to be taught this because. Teaching them more will make them become a nihilist. Um, but a teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist Galoop tradition would never purposely treat, teach you something wrong because you not, might not go home and figure it out. You might die that day with the wrong view. So I just want to, I don't know like school, like... Uh, that, that was just my, you, you answered my question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, but the example that you're giving 
is very, very different than this example. And I'll ask Rinpoche once you get to a question, but I just want to make that clear as you form your question. That's an example of using skillful means. That's probably a story about a bodhisattva who had to lie in order to save children. So in the bodhisattva vows, there's a vow that you have to break a vow if it, you, to do so, it's to save or to help or to, out of compassion. Um, so you find that in the bodhisattva vows where if out of compassion you have to break a vow, you have to, it's a vow that you have to break the vow. So that could be what that sutra was teaching about because usually when skillful means are being taught, they're in relation to bodhisattvas. Um, so that story is about why everything's not black and white if compassion is involved. But that also will get around to at some point in the fable or, or you know, whatever it is in the, the story that one who does not have clairvoyance and isn't realized doesn't always know when it's right to not follow the virtue. So you have to be very, 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 very careful when you break a vow if you're not realized, if you're doing so out of compassion because you don't even have compassion yet. You have what's called hollow compassion, which is hollow on the inside and sweet on the outside, like sugar cane compassion. But you don't really have it yet. You're just acting as if. So you have to be very careful when you say, well, I'm breaking this vow out of compassion. Um, so anyway, whenever skillful means is taught, it's usually about a bodhisattva who's realized. This story that's being taught about utilizing worldly convention isn't to appease the world or to be skillful so the world doesn't think you're crazy. It's saying the world is correct in naming these things because we all agree on it and they work in this way. And the only way that we can establish things is by having a name of them somehow. And that name works because we all agree on it. So Buddhism takes a whole lot of time to come up with the basis of negation. What's the basis of negation? Are you negating that it's a car? Well, if it's not a car, it's been misnamed in the fr first place. So that's not what we're talking about. The basis of negation is the fact that there's a car that intrinsically exists. So anyway, back to your question. One's talking about how we establish something as existent or non-existent. It exists if it's sitting in front of you and everyone else says it's there if you don't have hallucinations and it's suitable to be called whatever you call it if everyone calls it that. So then you start there and you say what about that car because there's a car there do we have to learn about because some nihilists don't believe there's anything there. They believe we're making it all up. So Buddhists establish and say, no, there's a thing there, it's a collection, and we can call it car. It's suitable to be called car. So we're not going to argue with the world about stuff like that because the world's right. So that's what that's saying. So I want to ask Rinpoche a question, but I always want to ask him the question. You know what I mean? So what would you like me to ask him? Uh, then yeah, my, the Rinpoche, my basic Kondi. question was just whether this was an example of a skillful means and whether the Tibetan tradition you know, uses the concept of skillful means. But you Absolutely. Of, yeah. yeah, bodhisattvas use skillful means. The Rinpoche, then the long ni, then ngama ngama kon becha lo song, then do chikshena do, peme do chikshena ngahako gamare, 
the the lung nang la the segdu the the kamba mejan the the pugu chun chun nang la yure the the chikshena shanchu semba kamba shilola the the kong yong yong pe 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 sho pe sho then the pugu chun chun the yongmare gang yene the kamba mejagdu then the shanchu semba nga chala shera yapu yure peronan peronan then the tapke tapke tap tapkepa then constant shanchu semba zunche so yene pugu shimason the shanchu semba zunche gang garshene zunche gang sena pugo mazuna yongmare then the kamba meja then the tap the the put Pupi na ngamchu. Tapke yurebe. Yure. Shanchu semba the gaiche she. Tapke shanchu semba gaiche she, Rimbache. Rube. Then susu ju, tapke yurebe. Shanchu semba mayimba? Mayina, pugu mashe, toshi jero. Pugu matu Okay, so there, um, then they, then they, the, the, Natsu, the, the Larim Chemo Long Yure, the Natsu Jikten Dan Midrewa Yomare, Jikten Dan Gewa Yomare, Jikten Salo Dan Gewa Yomare. Yene Kongi Chiwa, the, um, the the jikten kanga sampa the becha yin ngatsu ngatsu dang gelwa yomare the 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 jiktenba sampa the the mik mikshe yin ngatsu dasi dang yomare the sanje kelen the take the kakare kakare okay so Yes, um, Buddhists use um, skillful means, um, and skillful means are a lot of times being um, are are being mentioned in terms of a bodhisattva, but not always. One could, as a non-bodhisattva, use skillful means to, in the case of the house burning, if that wasn't a bodhisattva, and the person said. Uh, kept the children from dying by lying about some treats. Um, that would be using skillful means to get the children out of the house, but it wouldn't be doing so without error potentially. They don't. The the bodhisattva. How do I say this? As a note, the bodhisattva. Uh, for instance, maybe that child. Um, let me give you a for instance. If someone doesn't have clairvoyance, if someone doesn't have omniscience. The child experiencing the sun, this is going to sound really hard to listen to, so just listen for a minute. The child experiencing the suffering of the burning up in that house might be the last karma that's really bad that has to come to fruition to keep that being from experiencing a hell rebirth for an eon. Then we save that being thinking that that's the right thing to do. And then that being then experiences the hell realm rebirth, and then maybe that being in four years from then was going to kill somebody. The answer is we go save the being in the burning house. 
but without omniscience, we're handicapped in some ways. So that's why skillful means is questionable whether it was really the right thing to do if you're not a bodhisattva. And that's why we, when you're, if you're not a realized bodhisattva, and that's why we want to become one so badly, so that we aren't handicapped, so that we always know the right way to help, so we don't ever hinder. But as people who are working within the framework we're working in, we have to practice love and compassion based on what we see in front of us. We have to give the person who needs a dollar a dollar. We have to help the person you know, and save them. We have to help someone across the street because that's the virtuous thing to do and that our motivation is virtue. But as for what those consequences are for the other person, our ego can't be so sure of what help really means. That's what the point of that is. So yes, in the case of that story, it's using skillful means. As Buddhists, we have that. Bodhisattvas primarily talk about that um, in Buddhas. And the other story is not about skillful means. That is about the valid establishment. Uh, so we're going to end. We have guests. Yeah, table it. We're going to table it. Okay, um, concluding mandala offering and dedication prayer. So that's why we want to become a Buddha so badly. What I just said that sounded bad is the sixth step in Atisha's, uh, the seven point cause and effect for achieving bodhicitta. The extraordinary attitude is this idea that, oh my God, I can't really help everybody. I have to become a Buddha. And that's the step before you get bodhicitta is knowing you're handicapped and the one that's not is Buddha, so you desperately need to become one as quickly as possible because your aims can't be fulfilled without doing it. So that's, that's, the, that's why that conversation's helpful, not because it's heady, because that's why it's helpful, to rush you to Buddhahood. The fundamental ground is scented with incense and strewn with flowers. Adorned with Mount Meru, the four continents, the sun and the moon, I imagine this as a Buddha land and offer it. May all sentient beings enjoy this pure realm. I dedicate whatever virtues I have collected for the benefit of the teachings of all sentient beings and for these. I send forth this jeweled mandala to you, precious guru. All this virtue to emulate the knowledge of the hero Manjushri and likewise Samatabhadra as well with whatever dedication is praised as supreme by all the conquerors who traverse the three times, I also dedicate all my roots of virtue for the sake of auspicious deeds. In that pure land surrounded by snowy mountains, you are the source of all benefit and happiness. All-powerful Avogateshvara Tenzin Yatso, may you stay until samsara's end. I pray for the long life of the precious Kensar Wandok, upholder of scriptural and realizational doctrines. The spiritual friend who trained extensively in the five great philosophical texts with exceptional wisdom and perseverance. Thank you.